I got a lot of things on my heart. I want to talk about the conscience. I want to transition over and start talking about faith tonight. Uh, but let me say this as it just occurred to me. Uh, you guys know that I'm working on my book on botany, redemptive botany of the Bible, and I've been studying figs ad nauseum. I am almost nauseated with figs. It's, the botany behind it was way more complicated than I thought, and I've had to study several research papers. But I taught a couple months ago before I even got to my study on figs out of Luke chapter 13 and the parable about the man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he was bummed because that fig tree didn't bear fruit. And, and you, how, you, how many of you know that a tree that doesn't produce fruit is pointless? And so that there's Acts, uh, it's Luke 13, 6 through about 10. And so he tells the vine dresser, cut it down. It's taking up space and it's sucking the life out of my soil. And that's what I want to focus on just for a moment before we go to 2 Samuel. Any tree in any church that is not producing fruit is taking up space and sucking up soil. Dr. Barclay even mentioned this down at the conference and so often what we do is we have to pray those people away because you're taking up somebody's space. Now we have a lot of empty chairs tonight. But maybe it's not the chair we're worried about. Maybe it's the time and the energy. A couple years ago, it's been about seven now, we lost a, like a draft of ladies Within a few weeks of time, a whole bunch of ladies left the church. And some did it quietly, and some did it slanderously. And I was heartbroken because my wife and I had poured into these ladies a lot. And in an elder meeting, one of the elders said, I was kind of upset. And one of the elders said, I think we should have a party. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, yeah, pastor... How much time did you invest in those people, those ladies? I said, well, my wife and I, we, a lot. One of them we invested in while my, my Lydia was a baby. And when my wife should have been taking care of a six-month-old, we were discipling one of these ladies trying to redeem her. And they just up and left us. So the elder said, he, he shall remain nameless. He said, these were your greatest times suck. They never produced any fruit. This looks like liberation to me, pastor. Let's have a party. That's pretty harsh, except God the Father said the same thing through his son, Jesus Christ, the huggy, squishy Messiah. In Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through about 10, he said, If it won't bear fruit, cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Why is it taking up space and wasting my time and my resources? So understand that's the word of the Lord for us as Christians. The intercessor, Jesus Christ, the vine dresser in the parable, he said, Give me a little bit more time. Let me dig it, which is the act of taking a shovel and cutting roots, which is like pruning the root system at the surface. Give me a, give me a year. He asked, all he asked for was a year. In the parable, Jesus has about six months left. So Jews count any part of a day as a full day and any part of a year as a full year. That's how the Jews do things. Give me what just this year. Let me cut the roots and let me fertilize it. And if it produces fruit, great. And if not, cut it down and send it to hell. And so Jesus did that. Then remaining six months of his life, he continued to rebuke, which is cutting roots, and fertilize, which is the preaching of the word. 
And that's what we do service after service around here. We dig your roots. We cut them up because that spurns, or spurs growth. And we fertilize you. So if through the process of me trying to be like Jesus, you remain fruitless, that's your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Something in you is broken. Something in you is hostile. Something in you is hardened. Something in you is belligerent. So in that case, you are wasting vineyard space. And you're sucking the nutrients out of the soil without producing any fruit. What's the point of a fruit tree without fruit? It's not a fruit tree. It's just a tree. Most fruit trees aren't good for their lumber. They're only good for their fruit. And so just hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 13. I'm not prophesying it to you, but I do perceive the Lord saying it. You've got to produce fruit, and you've got to figure out why you're not producing fruit if you're not. Because even in that parable, the Lord said, give me one more year, which means mercy isn't forever. Give me one more year, owner, which means grace is not forever, which means there is time. Um, there's an early church father that says judgment never happens suddenly. It always happens after warning, after warning, after warning, after warning, after warning, and then it happens. How many times have you and I been warned, and are we making any changes about it? So <laughs> there does come a time when you look at a tree and say, I've, I'm done investing in you. And you just cut it down. There's times a farmer looks at the field and says, you're not going to produce a crop in time and just plows the whole thing under. Why exhaust the soil? Let's go ahead and cut our losses now. Why waste more water, manpower, and fertilizer on a crop that will not make it in time for harvest and deplete the soil? Let's just stop the loss now. And the Lord, again, this is hot on my heart because I've been studying botany for seven or eight months. He uses so much agricultural parables and metaphors because that's the culture. And he looks at us as things that should produce fruit. And if we don't, he just plows it under and starts afresh. So don't be that. All right? Second Samuel. Let's go there. There's a German proverb I used to be able to say in German, but it basically says, tomorrow, tomorrow, never today. That's what all the lazy people say. Tomorrow, tomorrow, never today. What's your excuse now? What's your excuse now? What's your excuse now? It's almost like that's the uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Excuses, that's like the siren song of the upper Cumberlander. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 15. Let's talk about the conscience. Uh, just to review, and we're going to try to advance our subject tonight. We'll probably have times for questions and answers uh, if, if time permits and if you're hungry or still with me in an hour or so. Uh, we said, according to the New Testament, you can have a defiled conscience. You can have a good conscience. You can have a pure conscience. You can have a weak conscience. You can have a seared conscience. According to Ephesians 5, in the Greek, you can have a calloused conscience. And so these are all these different variables of the conscience. We've also said that your conscience is the voice of your heart. It's what your heart has to say about anything presented to it. We admitted that sometimes you look at something and you just don't even know what you're looking at, and you've got to figure out what it is you're looking at, and then maybe your heart has something to say about it. Sometimes you have to be taught what to think about something because you don't know what to think of it. Our job as a Christian is to make sure we bring into captivity every thought, every conscience, so to speak, 
and make sure it's what God says about whatever the subject is. What does God say about welfare? What does God say about uh, charity? What does God say about fornication? What does God say about theft? What does God say about gossip? What does God say about being a stay-at-home mom? What does God say about uh, becoming a politician? What, you've got to get into the Word of God and write His Word on the tables of your heart so that your conscience can think like God's thoughts are. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, or your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are above your ways. But he never said we can't have his thoughts. The Bible tells us to have the mind of Christ. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. So we can get to a place where we begin to renew our thoughts after the thoughts of God and begin to think a lot better. And that's our job. But until we get there, we're going to hiccup and burp and hear ourselves say a lot of dumb stuff. Uh, your voice has, a, your heart has a voice, and you've got to be able to be in tune to it. I think we said last week or two weeks ago that offense, offense is the voice of the conscience. When you're offended at something, what is your heart saying? That's not right. That makes me mad. Offense is a voice of the conscience. And you've got to be able to key into what you're offended at and recognize it. Am I right to be offended here, or am I wrong to be offended here? If it offends God, it's okay to be offended. If it doesn't offend God, why are you offended? That's like uh, 1 Samuel says that basically you've got to honor what God honors and you've got to hate what God hates. And don't ever mix that up. So here in 2 Samuel chapter 15, I quote this a lot. Uh, we're going to look at it in the NIV, so I have it up on the overhead. So let's go verse 1, Josh. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. This is the story of Absalom. He's upset. He's come back from being an outcast, and his dad won't give him the time of day. Now, his dad has every right to kill him because he killed one of his half-brothers. He killed his half-brother for raping his half-sister, who he was also fond of. It's a really sick... David wasn't a good dad. Let's just be very clear. David, great worship leader, tremendous military leader, horrible father. Not many good dads in the whole Bible. God the Father and Asaph and Abraham, and Joseph. And that's about it. That is about it. Or you could say, Philip the evangelist that had four daughters that did prophesy. So you're doing pretty good when your daughters are still in the house of God and they're holy enough to prophesy. Not prophesy, not prophesy-manipulate. The Bible says they prophesied, which means they were true prophets in the prophecy sense. Not that they were a prophetess, but they were prophesying. So maybe Philip the Evangelist. So not many good dads in the whole Bible. David was definitely not a good dad. So here's Absalom, verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with him 50 men to run ahead of him. He's trying to put on the air that he's still important. His dad won't have anything to do with them. Verse 2. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. I'll stop there. So here's the scenario. Absalom would purposely go and wait by the gate of the city, and he would kind of hover there because he has an agenda. And his agenda is he wants to get even with his dad. He has daddy issues, as most rebe rebellious people do. 
they're mad in their heart at their dad. Now, that's a, that's a conscience thing. That's the thing your voice says. I'm just mad. I'm just mad. I'm just mad at my dad. It may go back to Christmas 1985 when you didn't get the Buck Rogers ray gun that you thought you deserved, in which case we'd say, grow up. You had a roof over your head that Christmas, didn't you? You had food on your plate Christmas morning, didn't you? Yeah, grow up. I need to drag your sorry tail to the mission field and let you see how joyful the developing nations are. And if you're not disgusted with yourself, then you're hopeless. He has a daddy issue. He wants to get back at his dad. And so what he decides to do is he's going to sit at the city gate. This is like the entrance to Walmart. We don't have a concept of this because there's really, with Jerusalem, there's four ways in. Uh, but here's the city gate. And he would call out to anybody who he could perceive had a matter that needed judgment. So they're going to court. And it was a high enough case that the king himself would decide it. So maybe these were influential people because not just Jethro and his goat were going to get an audience with the king. These must have been highfalutin people. So what does Absalom do but call out to him and says, Hey, who are you? Where are you from? Well, I'm from one of the tribes of Israel. So what we see now is schmoozing, politicking, and manipulating is beginning. Verse 3. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. Stop there. Man, I hate it for you. This case is serious, but the king doesn't care about you guys. King James says, The king has not deputed or deputized anybody to take care of you. I wish, that I wish the king cared more. See, see, look at those words. Your claims are valid and proper. You are right. The king is wrong. You are right. The king is wrong. This is manipulation because you're telling the individual you're important and the king cares nothing about you. We're talking about the conscience being changed. We're talking about how you activate someone's heart in your favor. One of the best ways to get people on your side is to compliment them. It's a good technique for public relations. It's a wonderful technique for evangelism if you're genuine in it. One of my little gimmicks, only because I'm a geologist, is I know a lot about gemstones. And if I perceive the situation as proper, I'll compliment people on their gemstones, on their jewelry. Because if you're wearing jewelry, you want it to be noticed. That's why you're wearing it. So one of the things I'll always, I do this a lot, actually, I just did it yesterday. I said, hey, is that, a, is that an onyx or is that an amethyst? Or is that a tiger's eye? And even if they're like the most hardcore weirdo looking person, they'll drop their guard and they'll say, yeah. And you can get to talking to them. And I usually use it for evangelism. Oh, well, that's awesome. That's cool. What other jewelry you got? What is that? And they're usually impressed that I know what they're wearing, but there's only so many gemstones. So it's not that I'm that smart is that there's only so many gemstones that you would actually put on a ring. And once you know them, you know them. And then you can usually work the gospel in there. That's doing it for the kingdom of God. He's doing it because he has a bigger picture, an ulterior motive. He says, you're right. Your situation's right, but the king doesn't care about you. He's neglecting you. And what he's doing, he's beginning to change the people's hearts from loving David, which is why they're seeking his judgment, to now they're going away going, Huh. Next verse. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Now pause there. 
So what he's doing is saying, look, the king just isn't doing it right. And that means you guys aren't going to get the justice or the retribution you need. Your, that goat that was killed is not going to be replaced by your neighbor. It's just not right. And so you can see that what he's doing is he's sowing discord, which the Bible calls an abomination, but he's doing it through politics and through a smile. And again, the setting here is this is the kingdom of David. This is the greatest king Israel has ever had and ever will have, except for Jesus Christ. And even in the millennium, the Bible says David will reign from the throne of Jerusalem again. This is the greatest king. They don't even realize what they've got, and they're being manipulated a little bit at a time off of him. Absalom doesn't have to talk to everybody. He just has to talk to these influential people, and gossip spreads. You know, guy goes home and says, you know, hey, I ran into the king's son. I was just so shocked that Prince Absalom would even talk to me today. You know, he mentioned something in passing. He said the king doesn't really deputize anybody, and our cases aren't getting heard. I don't know. Maybe he knows something we don't. And you can see it work like leaven, leavening a lump. He doesn't outright say the king is wicked. He doesn't outright say the king is abominable. He just sows these seeds of doubt and undermines his dad's authority. Next verse. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. He would not let them pay him obeisance as an honor him. He brought them up to his level and literally schmoozed them. As if to say, I'm the prince, but we're equal. <laughs> Next verse. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. He slowly turned their heart away from their king. A little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. He stole their hearts. So what happened was, through the course of his time and him doing this, if you, up until this time, if you'd have said, if you'd have said the name David, Israel would have said, oh, king, live forever. What, the great, what a great king. May the peace of God shalom upon David and his throne. Because they loved him. Just the, the utterance and the, the noise of David's name, and they would have said, praise God for his king, for his righteous king. Now, what do you think about David? He's a dog. I wish that Goliath would have won. What a wretch. That's how it works. Just a short time earlier, if you said David's name, they'd have been happy, but now their conscience has been slowly turned, little by little. Look at verse 7. At the end of four years, so that's all it took. Four years. King James says 40. They believe it's a manuscript typo because Absalom was not 40 years old, so there's a little bit of a play there. Um, Josephus says four years. The Septuagint says four years. So anyway, at the end of four years, so four years of schmoozing and manipulating the conscience of Israel, it only took four years to steal the heart of Israel. We know it wasn't all of Israel, but a big portion Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. He knows, all right, I'm in a place now. I got enough people behind me. I can do what I want. So he goes and he plays his dad. Next verse. 
While your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord will take me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. Next verse. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Next verse. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Now remember, for four years, he's been saying, if only I could be deputized, if only I could be judged. For four years, he's been telling everybody, my dad doesn't love you, but if I were a judge, I don't even want to be king, but if I were a judge, I would give you justice. I would give you that righteous decision you need. He's been sowing it. Faith comes by hearing. He's turned the hearts of the people away from their best king. They don't even realize what they're losing. And now he's got it set and staged so that when he pulls the trigger, everybody will say with one voice, yes, it's Absalom finally and no longer David. Next verse. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been quite, uh, excuse me, had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. So he's using people. Verse 12, when Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo. I guess when you're from Gilo, you're a Gilonite. His hometown, by the way, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather, which explains why he's eager to betray David. This is after the Bathsheba incident. And so the conspiracy gained strength. Now, let's pause there. This is the reason people will use you, because there's a conspiracy. Galatians says they do zealously affect you, but not for your good. They want to use you. 1 Corinthians 14, I quote it all the time. There are many voices in the earth, and none of them is without signification. You've got to be careful the voices you listen to, because they're all competing for your heart, and they will steal you away from what God has for you. We're talking about how your conscience can be changed, how it can be swayed, how your conscience can evolve and be moved off of the word of God onto something else. You can go from saying Jesus Christ is Lord and God's word is true to Jesus Christ is my God and I like the Bible to Jesus Christ is a God and the Bible has some good lessons to Jesus Christ is an important historical figure. And the Bible has some good moral lessons to Jesus Christ is one among many. And it's a slow movement and it's all a work of faith. We've all had friends that we saw walk this way and slowly come down. But notice the conspiracy the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Next verse. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And David never knew it even happened. Next verse. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring us uh, bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And I think that's the last verse I want to look at. Yep. So here's three things going on here. Absalom has an agenda. He needs Israel. He needs to use them to accomplish it. And he's going to betray David. Absalom succeeds in changing Israel's heart, at least the bulk of it. But Israel isn't the only, na only group here that's had a heart change. David's heart has changed as well. Since when does David flee anything? Much less a pompous pretty boy named Absalom who has hair like Goldilocks. You'd almost think this boy was half metrosexual. 
little prissy, flamboyant, donkey-riding idiot. Since when does David run from children? This is the boy. This is the man who has a 13-year-old picked a fight with a giant and raised his wage to make sure it was really worth the effort. The city, the nation of Israel isn't the only one whose conscience has changed. David has changed as well. He's no longer fearless. Fear is a conscience. Fear is the voice of your heart saying, I'm scared, I can't do it. And, and that was definitely the conscience of David. Let's flee or none of us will survive. No, no, you have more than enough mighty men of valor. They're willing to die for you now. Just say the word. We'll go kill Joab right now. We got enough spies. But David's heart has changed. I want you to see that just because your heart is right with God today doesn't mean it'll be right with God tomorrow. Even as we look around, and we have a light crowd tonight because we have so many folks out traveling and so many folks up in the mountains with Camp Bioka. But even from year to year, we don't serve God with the same people anymore because folks leave. They quit God. They get offended. They, they find a lesser church to go play games in. And I want you to understand that just because your heart and your conscience is right with God today doesn't mean it automatically will be there a year from now. You and I have to walk with God every day and make sure our heart stays right. Otherwise, it can be stolen like Israel's was through manipulation, or it can become cowardly like David's. We want to make sure that this doesn't happen to us. Another, I'll summarize your heart changing, your conscience changing in one word. That word is divorce. Just to prove to you your conscience can change very quickly, all you have to do is look at the notion of divorce. Because before you get married, you see that guy or girl and your heart says, well, 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 what do we have here? Who's that? And then right before you get divorced, you see them coming and you say, my God, it's Satan's spawn. That's what your heart says. Same heart, same person, different voice. I mean, three years prior, well, 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 my, 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 who's that? I'll drive across the country for that girl. And then right before the divorce, man, I wouldn't walk across the street at a green light to spit on her if she was on fire. <laughs> That's how easily the heart changes. Same two human beings, different voice of heart, and it's your faith. Your faith says, ain't nobody going to have that girl but me. I will do whatever it takes to win her. And then what do I do to lose this girl? How, I'll take her to the woods and let her go like a stray dog. Just get her out of my life or get him out of my life. That's how quickly this thing happens. That's what we see with David. Israel said, what a great king. And then they said, let's overthrow him and kill him. That's how it happens. That's why your heart is inconsistent. It's incurably sick. Who can know it? That's why Proverbs says, put a guard on it. That's why whoever controls your ears and eyes controls your heart. It should be you controlling your ears and your eyes. You control what you look at on your cell phone. You control who you run with. You don't run with lesser Christians. You come up higher. You always come up higher. Don't run with folks that slow you down. Cut them free. Tell them, run, keep up with me. I'm not slowing down for you. Yeah, that, that divorce is a powerful thing. Conscience is what your heart is saying about a matter constantly. And so you've got to make sure that you're careful because your conscience 
can change. Let me, let me show you a few slides real quick to demonstrate this with kind of modern politics. I've got four slides. Let's do the first one, Josh. Uh, the, the, put the slide up. Right now, we're dealing with uh, sports. Sports have always been kind of this safe zone away from politics. And yet, in the last two or three years, sports have become very political. So I want to show you, other than this concept of divorce, how quickly conscience can be changed. All right, conscience and faith. So we know two years ago with Colin Kaepernick, the NFL said, we're not bending our knee for the national anthem. You stand or go to the locker room. Well, then they just quit cutting, they quit showing it on the telecast, and then all of a sudden they just quit caring anymore. So the NFL declared this week that football is gay. In fact, there's a commercial you can watch. It's the most bizarre thing. It says, football is gay, football is strong. Football is queer, football is for everyone. Football is bisexual, football is lesbian, football is transgender, football... I thought, if this is a marketing scheme, you wasted money because that wasn't hard. But look at this op-ed for USA Today. NFL's declaration that football is gay, it signals league's ongoing evolution. This is what President Obama said when in his first term he said he was against gay marriage. And then in his second term he said he was for gay marriage. Now the reason he was against it in the first term is because he needed the black vote. Then he got reelected, and after he got reelected and he earned the black vote, then he was able to switch and say, well, I, I'm evolving. Same with Hillary Clinton. To get running, she wanted to get the black vote. And so she said she's against gay marriage. Well, after it, she said, well, I'm evolving on this. When she, her husband, President Clinton, if you're old enough to remember politics back in the 90s, he signed the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. That was Clinton. Defense of marriage says marriage is one man and one woman. The Clintons signed that. So then Hillary has to come out and say, I'm pro-gay marriage. Well, you, were, you, you signed DOMA in the 90s. Well, I'm evolving. What's she admitting? My conscience is changing. My heart is evolving. That's all this is right here. When you're evolving on a subject, you're admitting my heart is not static. It's evolving. It's changing. So whereas two years ago, the NFL said, you know what? You can't take a knee for the national anthem. We're proud of this nation. Now they're saying football is gay. Social justice is all about homosexuality, transgenderism. It has very little to do with any kind of justice. Christians have no business being a social justice warrior. If you are, you're no soldier in the army of the Lord. Because you're either a soldier in the army of the Lord or you're a social justice warrior. And means if, the, if you're in the Lord's camp as an SJW, you're a traitor. Do you know what the Great Commission says? It has nothing to do with social justice. Win the lost, make disciples. You're not winning the lost or making disciples, marching, carrying a banner. The wonderful thing about the Great Commission, you can do it in a POW camp. I never see SJW in a POW camp. You can't be an SJW in a communistic regime. So to be an SJW, you have to have first world prosperity and first world liberty and first world grace and first world riches and first world education. And if you have all that, then where's the injustice? Typocritical, duplicitous, and ignorant. So now this is the logo evolving, evolving, because the heart is desperately wicked, incurably sick, and it can be stolen.
And this week, they had the, the player come out as a homosexual, and they were all excited till they found out. What was the guy's name? I don't remember it. You'll have to yell it. It's a weird name. It's a white guy with a weird name. It doesn't matter. He came out as gay this week in the NFL, and they were all excited till he said he was a pro-Trump Republican. <laughs> and now they're not happy that this pro-homosexual or this gay, first openly gay NFL player said, yeah, I'm gay. And I voted for Trump and I'm a conservative. And all of a sudden he is not the poster boy anymore because social justice is not about social justice. Here is Macy Gray. Now, I don't mean to pick on her for any other reason, but I want to show you how her heart has evolved. Macy Gray, she's a singer. She was really big about 20 years ago. Her music eh, is okay. You'd probably recognize it. If we played it, we're not going to play it. She sounds like... She sounds like what Destiny's Child would sound like if Bob Dylan was the vocal coach. That's her vocal style. Frank, I appreciate you caught the joke there because you're old enough to know Macy Gray and young enough to know Destiny's Child. So Macy Gray, she said last week uh, during Juneteenth that we need to scrap the American flag and make another one because the American flag doesn't represent us. So... All right, right now, woke is popular. It's what all the cool kids are doing. But she did sing the national anthem at a baseball game once, so she didn't have a problem then. And she didn't have a problem wearing the American flag. So my point, not to pick on her hypocrisy, because I don't think she's a hypocrite. My point is she's evolved. So her heart is no longer the same. It's evolved. Somebody has gotten a hold of her heart. She's changed her beliefs. So she apparently loved the American flag at one point. That's a very expensive looking outfit. I mean, she just did a whole outfit up. You know, that's a custom suit to sing a concert, to sing the national anthem. I mean, she loved the American flag so much, she dressed up like it. So in that day, she would look at that thing and she'd be proud to wear it. Last week, two weeks ago, she said, we need a brand new flag. This doesn't represent us. I'm ashamed of it. What happened? What changed? This week, the, uh, that, the black lady got third place in the uh, hammer put, shot put, hammer toss, whatever, and uh, made a name for herself by turning her back when the national anthem was played, and she said that national anthem doesn't represent black people. Well, tell that to Whitney Houston, who sang it. Tell that to Macy Gray, who sang it. Tell that to Marvin Gaye, who sang it. Tell that to Mariah Carey, who sung it. Tell that to Jimi Hendrix, who played it on the guitar in the 60s. Culture is evolving, and it's taking people's hearts with it. Because you can't have a revolution without people. And you can't have soldiers without commitment. That's what we're dealing with here. This is why we stay in the Word. Because this is all just cultural waves. This is just cultural waves. And if you're a fool, you'll fly your flag, and you'll be taken and tossed and driven. When you're at the beach and the waves are big, you just go underwater and just let it all flush over you. I, I don't want to get caught up with any of this. I love our nation. I love our soldiers. I love our police. But I'm not dying for wokeism, and I'm not dying in some civil war. Our gospel message is the gospel. America is not the gospel. The Constitution is not the gospel. Thank God for our Constitution. But I want you to see that people's hearts are being stolen left and right and you've got to make sure you're not being pimped or whored.
by those who know how to manipulate with propaganda. You want to know who the new slave owners are? The hip-hop music industry. When you get rich off of poor blacks, when they stay in their slums and you just keep building bigger houses on Martha's Vineyard, you're the new slave master. How's that for propaganda? Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Let's flip it up now and talk about how this applies to faith. We've said your conscience is the voice of your heart. Now, here's where we want to make a connection, and we want to begin to make these observations. Your conscience is the voice of your heart, but faith is also the voice of your heart. Romans chapter 10, verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Notice the righteousness of faith, faith, faith. Faith speaketh on this wise, say not in your heart. So the first thing faith in your heart says is don't say something in your heart. Exactly what we talk about with the conscience. When you look at something, what does your heart say? A couple years ago, um, we had some guests with us. And one of the ladies with us is a very pretty lady. We're friends with her. She's a very pretty young lady. And I was following one of our men out this door here. We used to have a hallway there before we remodeled everything. I'm the pastor. One of our men is walking in front of me. He had never met this pretty young lady. And as soon as we opened this door, she walked right past us. And I heard this man's heart say, oh, my. <laughs> because he saw how pretty she was. And that, I heard I heard it by the word of knowledge. Oh my. And I went, well, what, who said that? And then I realized it was his heart. I'm the pastor, just one of the gifts of the spirit. I perceived what his heart said. He didn't say, I'd like to have sex with that. He didn't say, I want to have an adulterous affair with that. He just saw her and his heart said, oh my. That was the voice of his heart. We have to be mindful of what our heart is saying if we're ever going to harness it in faith for Jesus Christ. Because faith says, say not in your heart. So you got to be mindful of what you're not or shouldn't be saying in your heart. It's going to hard it's going to be hard to say Lord I love you and I also love booze and I also love fornication and I also love uh, excuses. Because if the if you love the Lord, he'll say follow me and do what I tell you. If you love me, keep my commandments. So say not in your heart and he goes on to say a couple of things. Now the conscience is the voice of your heart. Faith is also a voice or the voice of your heart, but faith has other aspects too. Faith is actions. Faith is work. James says faith without works is dead. Faith speaks. So there's more to faith than just the voice of your heart. But I want you to see there's this overlap here of conscience and faith. And if we can begin to pay attention to the voice of our heart, we'll also be able to learn how to isolate our faith and make it stronger. Just like David said in the psalmist, uh, when you said, seek me, O Lord, my heart said, I will seek you. So that's what David's heart said in response to the word of the Lord. But not everybody would say the same thing in their heart. If the Lord came to you and said, seek me tonight, would you say, can I do it tomorrow? Or would you be like David in your heart say, O Lord, tonight I will seek you. You've got to learn to hear the voice of your heart, the voice of your conscience, the voice of what your heart has to say about everything so you can pinpoint when you are and are not in faith. We are Southerners. We like the cheap facade. 
And sometimes I'll sit down with people and, I, and I'll say, are you okay? Oh, I'm perfectly okay. When you're not, you're not okay. What you ought to say is, I'm terrified. I can tell I'm nervous. I'm sick at my stomach. I don't trust this situation. I don't know what I'm going to do. We, we church it up. We, we, we disconnect by we try to put on a, a right confession while we're totally ignoring the confession of our heart. And so the, we put on this facade, which is religiosity, when what's really being said in our heart is the total opposite. And it's ter- perfectly all right to say, I'm going to be okay, but right now I'm a nervous wreck. I'm going to be okay, but right now I want to throw up. I'm going to be okay, but right now I don't know what to do. But God is faithful. you got to be honest and just confess things. I, I was talking to somebody, and they said, uh, Pastor, when you recognize something's wrong in your heart, do you always get an answer for it? And I said, yes. If I take it to the Lord, resolution always comes. If I say, Lord, I don't like this person. Lord, I don't like this preacher. Lord, I don't like this situation. Lord, I don't like this church member right now. When I'm honest with the Lord with what my heart is saying, resolution always comes eventually. There's, there's nothing I've gone through where I've coughed up the guts of my heart where the Lord hasn't resolved it or show me how to resolve it. It's always come a resolution. But I think we can see how if we played games with God and gave him the right answer, the religious answer, you would just prolong reality. You'd prolong victory. You got to be able to be honest and say, right now, Lord, my husband just irritates me. I'd like to kill him, but I can't, Lord. Lord, right now, I don't believe, I believe in adoption. I believe in giving up half of these kids for adoption. I only have one. (laughs) Lord, right now, I'm just not happy. Instead of coming to church and being fake, come and be honest. Be real. Put on the, the belt of truth and be able to be honest with God. We've made observation many times in the past. Many of David's psalms, they start off and he sounds like a nutcase. This is the king. He runs everything and he's terrified of everyone. But he's pouring out his complaint. He even said, so I poured out my complaint. He said, all night my tears have been my bread. Dude, dry it up. And yet by the end of every psalm, he's victorious, he's bold, he's confident, he's ready to go wage war. If it was us writing the psalm, we'd be saying, I feel pretty, oh so pretty, I'm important, and Instagram today. It would be such a facade. But David shows us how to do it. Lord, my life stinks. I hate everything going on. I hate the people around me. Nobody loves me. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And then about halfway through the psalm, he turns around and realizes, I'm an idiot. God's for me. Grow up, boy. Get a hold of yourself. You killed lions and bears, and you're having a temper tantrum on your bed. Put your big boy pants on. Go get a sword and kill something. Say <laughs> law. Yeah. Start off with honesty. Even look at your spouse. I don't like you. <laughs> Many a time I've endeavored to flirt with my wife only to receive from her a, that makes me want to punch you in the face, which means I'm not flirting effectively. (laughs) So I try pinching the other arm. That doesn't help either. Look at, um, let's look at Matthew chapter nine. Let's look at a couple of examples of faith being the voice of your heart. Matthew chapter nine. Verse 20, Matthew 9, 20, this is the woman with the issue of blood. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood, 12 years, came behind him and touched the hem of his garment, for she said within herself, 
If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith hath made thee whole. What was faith? Well, it's a combination of two things here. It's saying in her heart and then doing. But I want you to emphasize or, or to draw your attention to, she said within herself. What was her conscience? If I can touch him, I'm healed. If I can touch him, I'm healed. Now, how, how did she develop that faith? Uh, Mark, Mark's gospel says in um, chapter 5, it says of the same story, for she had heard of Jesus. So she heard of him. He was the healer. He was the healing rabbi. And that caused her heart to say, the second she heard of him, her heart said, oh, oh, if I can heal, if I can get to him, if I can touch him, I'll be healed. Her conscience had something totally different to say than somebody else. Nobody else said, if I can touch him, I'll be healed. Blind Bartimaeus said, if I can get his attention, I'll be healed. The centurion said, if he'll just speak the word, my servant will be healed. They all had a different conscience, but it was all faith. Then others said, he can't heal anybody. Others said, he heals people by the prince of devils. Everybody had something to say about Jesus. Some of those things were faith, and some of those things were blasphemy. So our faith has got to be judging our heart to see, are we saying what God says about himself? That's how you get into faith instantly. What does God's word say? That's what I'm going to believe. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. The first time you hear it, you don't necessarily believe it. Um, one of our recent sermons, I told you how when my wife rededicated her life and got started going to the Assemblies of God Church, she heard one sermon for the very first time ever on tithing, and her heart said, oh, I guess I need to do this. And she's been a tither ever since. Hasn't stolen from God since she was 21 or so. Other Christians you preach the tithe to for 30 years, they're still not convinced. Their conscience, their faith says, I don't know about that. That preacher's just interested in your money. Let me just tell you, there's not a single tithe in this church that makes or breaks this church. There's no big giver who makes or breaks. Or we don't rise on any one person's offering. So your giving doesn't hurt us. Your stealing hurts you. So that's one person. Well, they're just after your money. They just want your money. Preacher always wants your money. Nope, nope. God wants your heart. He obviously doesn't have it yet, which is why your life's a mess. Pretty simple. But some person, like my wife in this instance, she can hear a message once. I need to be a tither. And her heart instantly grabs a hold of it. I can give her a message that says, thou shalt rub my feet every night. Her heart's like, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I think if we preach it every day with the offering, I might get some foot rubs. I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe I should sow some and I could reap some. I don't know about that either. <laughs> That's why we bought one of those foot shiatsu, so we ain't got to work on our thumbs. <laughs> you see that her faith was, if I can touch them, I'll be healed. It's what she said within herself. Look at, um, look at Mark chapter 2 as another example. The conscience, the heart, it is so dynamic, you have to guard it because whatever you hear can convince you to invest your faith in it. This is what advertising exists for. This is why you have recruiters for the military. I used to, one of my neighbors used to be a recruiter for the army. We called him, his name was Dan. I called him Lieutenant Dan, though he wasn't a lieutenant. 
Uh, he was a recruiter when I was his neighbor, and I would go to the recruiting office here in Cookville, and you go down that hallway, and all four branches are there, and I'm too old to be recruited, even at this point, and I'm just going down to see my neighbor, and those guys would come out like car salesmen to try to sell you on their branch of the military and what they can do for you. Like, guys, guys, I'm here to see Lieutenant Dan. There's no lieutenant in this office. Whatever, corporal, Lance Corp, whatever he is, that, I'm here to see him. Advertisement works on convincing you. Preaching works on convincing you. Recruitment works on convincing you. Media works on convincing you. False media, fake media, fake news works on convincing you. Your professor works in their agenda by convincing you. That's why you've got to stay in the Word and let it float all other junk out. Faith comes by hearing, and if you hear it enough, you'll begin to believe it. Mark chapter 2. Verse 2, and straightway many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came, uh, come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Four guys were carrying their buddy, who was a paralytic. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed where, uh, wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Here we see faith as an action. No doubt their heart said, We'll tear this roof up and get him to Jesus one way or another. That's what they were saying in their heart. Otherwise, why would they do it? When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But they were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So they hear this, their conscience says one thing. Here's what their hearts are reasoning. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? All these scribes begin to have the same conscience response. The, the voice of their heart says, why does this man speak blasphemies? They were cool with the message. They were cool with the healing. They were cool with the ceiling being torn up. Nothing tweaks their heart until he says, son, your sins be forgiven thee. And now all of a sudden they're offended and their faith activates. Whatever activates your heart, that's your faith. As we've been saying, what, what is it that activates you? Why are we sometimes more offended at God than in faith with God? When the devil knows your offense buttons, he'll always play them. He'll, he'll play a game with you because he's so much smarter than us. We're not ignorant of his devices. He's a brilliant creature. They've studied us for thousands of years. They'll let you rise just to see how far they can make you fall. They'll watch you get a momentum just to come along and activate that offense you have, whether it's towards mama, whether it's an ill word from daddy, whether it's the, the, the person across the hallway or across the street you don't like. You'll get a good momentum going, and then they'll just move and activate you just to watch you fall. we got to be better than that. Great peace. Have they which love the law, and nothing offends them. These guys were offended, and their heart began to reason. And their heart said, their conscience said, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, just like me coming out that door and hearing one of our men say, Oh my, I could perceive by the Spirit of God. This is what their heart was saying. This is a really pretty lady. And oh, oh my. 
Again, I don't think it was sinful, just like you might see a, a, a good-looking red sports car drive across you at the intersection, and you go, oh, my. You don't want to chase that thing down and steal it. You're like, oh, my. It's a Ferrari. What is the one doing in Cookville? Must have won the lotto. Why reason ye these things in your hearts? That's a voice of the heart. Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins? He says to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up your bed, go, your, uh, go thy way into the house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. You have people offended, and simultaneously you have people amazed and glorifying God. Same Jesus, same words, same action, different heart responses. We all have to guard our heart and ask ourselves why we don't all respond to Jesus the same. Why don't we all respond to the word the same? Why, why don't we all rejoice the same? Why do we get offended differently? Why can I say certain things or throw up certain PowerPoints and offend you? I know you well enough. I know what slides to put up there to push your buttons. And I do it on purpose. So you can see where the devil still owns you. Other than something pornographic or just, just outright vile, there's probably nothing you could put up there that would offend me. Call my mama names, make fun of my skin color, accent, make fun of my family, make fun of my wife, my kids. You're not going to move me. If you put something up there pornographic, I'd be offended because it's, it's inappropriate. It's grossly inappropriate. But I've been in lots of sermons where I disagree with the preacher, even his perspective. I wasn't offended. When, uh, when George Floyd got killed uh, a year ago, I called all of my black friends to check up on them, let them know I loved them. I've got black pastor friends across the whole spectrum of Christianity. I was shocked at who didn't care. <laughs> One of my black Baptist friends, he said, I don't care about this. We're not getting caught up in this stupid race war. We're called to preach the gospel. I've told my church, pay no attention to the race baiters. We're going on with Jesus. I had another friend lecture me for an hour and a half and told me, you need to fix your people. You need to fix your people. You need to fix your people. You whites, you whites, you whites. I took that for an hour, didn't get offended. I didn't kill the guy. I'm not a cop. I didn't put my knee on his neck. But he was upset. I just let him vent. Didn't offend me. He's upset. I don't think he's in a good place because you can't talk to another preacher for an hour and a half like that and be in a good place with Jesus Christ. Know who the enemy is. It's not flesh and blood. Did we forget that verse? You've got to figure out why we don't all reply to Jesus the same because it will come back to the conditions of our heart. These guys heard Jesus speak. They got offended. Jesus had to rebuke them and say, why do you reason this in your heart? You think I'm blasphemous. You're blasphemous. Listen to what your heart says when the word is preached. Listen to what your heart says when worship goes forth and we sing about his majesty and his resurrection and his power. Does your heart soar or do you go, I don't like the beat? This ain't my style of music. I can't hear it. Then move up closer, dummy. I mean, you're smarter than that. If you can't hear, move closer. It's too loud. Then move further away or bring some cotton. <laughs> what does your heart say? Remember, we're talking about, we start off by saying a tree can bear fruit only so long the Lord cuts it down 
And the reason we don't bear fruit is because of our hearts. Mark chapter 4. So where do you lack fruit? Acts chapter 14, our last verse here. We're talking about the heart having a voice. That voice is the conscience, but the voice is also at times faith. Acts chapter 14. Then we might do a little question and answer. We've got a few minutes here. Jesus preaches, people get offended. Jesus preaches, they want to stone him. Jesus preaches, they want to push him off a cliff. Paul preaches, they want to stone him. Paul preaches, they yell and want to tear him apart. <laughs> if Paul preached here, I think we'd hang on the edge of our seats or we'd be terrified because you know he'd rip us apart. I think I'm pretty soft compared to Paul. I think I'm very soft compared to Jesus Christ. When the word goes forth, what does your heart say? Do you lean in and go, man, that's good. Some of you don't take notes. I don't know why not. You ought to at least have a, even a tablet. To, has God not talked to you? You ought to write something down. Because he's going to communicate something. Are you just that? You just know it all. You know what verse I'm going to? Next. <laughs> I mean, you ought to at least have something because the Lord... If you're paying attention and your heart's right with God, even if the driest Methodist preacher gets up here and reads the scripture, you're going to get something. I was preaching for a black friend, and he was preaching. We were kind of tag teaming. And uh, he was sleeping with a woman in his church, not his wife. Just saying that. Because even he preached something. Even as a dirty pig involved in spiritual bestiality, because that's what, you know, when you sleep with sheep, that's bestiality, right? So he was involved in spiritual bestiality. I still got something pretty good out of his sermon. Even from a dirty pig like that. Not to pick on blacks, I got a white friend who slept with one of his sheep too. It's pretty dirty no matter what color you are or who it is. Bestiality is bestiality. I don't think there's any redemption or restoration for those kind of preachers. Because it took a long time to be trusted with God's sheep, and then you fall through all those levels of promotion to have sex with one, I don't think you can ever be trusted again, nor should you be. State of Tennessee passed a law that goes into effect tomorrow, that the state of Tennessee does not recognize any consensual sex between a, 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 a laity and clergy, especially when the clergy is counseling the laity. It's almost like prison sex. All prison sex is rape. So I want to know what the penalties will be because that, that law goes into effect tomorrow because that means any preacher having sex with anybody under his care or his counselship will be guilty of rape. How are you going to pastor that church from prison, Rev? I pray for judgment on the church, and may it begin with the preachers. Acts 14, verse 8. And there sat... A certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, and he got so offended at the message, he cussed and called him blasphemous and said, that's it. If somebody will pick me up and drag me out here, I'm leaving this meeting. This is heresy. The same heard Paul speak, Paul steadfastly beholding him and perceived that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. 
Here's a contrary example to the Pharisees. Paul preaches the gospel. This man hears the gospel. And what does his heart say? I can be healed. I can be healed. I can be healed. I can be healed. That's the voice of the heart. And Paul is able to perceive it. And he's able to hear it and say, that man can be healed. He believes it. And he looks at him and says, stand up on your feet and walk. And that's how it happened. Because that's how faith works. You can hear the cry of faith coming out of someone's heart. You can hear it. Years ago, I was at the beach and the Lord spoke to me to witness to a guy. I I shouldn't say that because it sounds like the Lord communicated to me through audible words. I looked down the beach. I saw a guy walking towards me and I knew I needed to go talk to him about Jesus. I could perceive it. So when I finally went and caught up with him and I said, hey man, are you a Christian? Are you born again? He said, what? I said, are you a born again believer? Are you a Christian? He said, are you serious? I said, yeah. Are are you a Christian? Do you know God? Are you going to heaven? He's like, are you for real? I said, look, dude, this is the beach. You interrupted my football throwing. Are you a Christian or not? And so he was kind of, I couldn't figure out what he was saying. He was, I was getting a little irritated with him. He said, no, no, you don't understand. And he turned around. He said, right back there, I was just walking down the beach and I looked out over the water and I said, God, if you're real, I want to know you. And where he pointed was right where I was throwing the football. And that, that's the word of knowledge, hearing the cry of someone's heart who doesn't even know God, his conscience saying, God, I want to know you. Pray with him. He got born again right there. It's the easiest, one of the easiest salvations I've ever seen through prayer. Just witnessing to a guy because his heart said, Lord, I want that. If you're real, I want to know you. Thankfully, I was close enough to witness to him. Somebody else would have gotten him if I didn't, for sure. This man heard Paul preach, and his heart said, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. In the spring of 1995, I was in FCA at Tennessee Tech, and I was Southern Baptist, and I was looking for more of God. I'd never heard the message of divine healing or any of the supernatural. I was taught somehow through vapors it had been done away with. But there came a minister to our FCA meeting who talked about how God had supernaturally healed his arm. And I remember sitting there as a 19-year-old. No, I was 18. I wasn't even 19 yet. I remember sitting there as an 18-year-old in between the two pillars under Memorial Gym. And as he talked about believing God for his healing and how God supernaturally healed his arm, his elbow overnight, I remember sitting there having this trippy experience where I could hear my heart say, I believe that. I believe that. I don't think I'm there yet, but I believe that. I believe God can do that, and I believe God will do that for me. I could remember that. And to me, it was the most earth-shattering, groundbreaking message I'd ever heard up until that point. And I thought, yeah, God's a healer. Man, that is awesome, yeah. Over the next week, I got wind from all the other FCA people. They were royally offended at that minister. And they wanted, to be, they wanted to find out who had invited them and why would they invite such heresy. They were offended at the same message that my heart said, I believe that and I'm going to have that. Because faith is a voice of the heart. You've got to be able to listen to what your heart is saying and reply to anything you hear. Does your heart go, ooh, when you hear vile music? Does your heart go, ooh, when you see pornographic images? Does your heart say, praise God, when you hear the name of Jesus? 
Are you embarrassed when you see other people evangelizing? Are you excited? Your heart has a reply to everything. You have to make sure it lines up with the Word of God. If you can ever hear the voice of your heart, you'll be able to tune into it and adjust it. Just like if you're learning a new language and you're having to learn how to pronounce things in German or Japanese or Swahili, those are the languages I play with, you'll hear it and you'll pronounce it over and over again. How do you say it again? And you'll practice saying it without the thick American accent. You'll practice the enunciation. That's how you have to be with your heart. What is my heart saying? Lord, let me train it to say what you say. Lord, teach my heart to fear your name. 